BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Emily St. John Mandel. She can play piano. She can dance. She's written numerous essays and short stories and is the author of six novels, including Station Eleven, which has been adapted for a TV series on HBO Max. She's that rare combination of writer who was both a literary success and has also achieved incredible commercial and popular success. And I'm thrilled she's here with us today. Emily, welcome. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, I should clarify, I used to be able to dance. I kind of doubt I still can. <laughs> it was a long time ago in a former life. Contemporary dance, right? Yeah, exactly. I studied ballet really intensely, um, but contemporary was my focus. Okay. Well, I could never dance. Uh, I had to sort of look up contemporary, so I knew it has influences of ballet and other mm-hmm. things. But my my dancing is uh, I just I try to keep the elbows tight, uh-huh. face kind of right. neutral, no right, sudden movements. Right. Don't draw attention to yourself. <laughs> exactly, that's me. I need someone there, just like don't you know, don't just try to hit a single. Don't no big right. swings out right. there. Yeah. So uh, I also wanted to tell you that when I was putting the show together about a year ago, and I was meeting with the producers at SiriusXM. I, and coming up with you know what I wanted to do with the show and the format and things like that, I had a wish list of bookings for the show of 10 authors. I was really hoping I could get on the show, and you were on the list. So this is sort of like a bucket list interview for the show. That's lovely to hear. Thank you. <laughs> and today we're drinking Earl Grey tea with some milk. We are, yeah. And you know, as I was saying earlier, it's my drink of choice in the late morning because at that point I've already had two cups of coffee. <laughs> So, like, I don't want to have a heart attack. I don't want to get into, like, trembling hands territory. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you want just kind of a, um, a light hit of caffeine. So right. You just throttle back a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's I may try that because sometimes when I'm in that mode of writing and it's a long period of time, I do write with coffee. And I start with one and then two. And if I'm writing a little later, usually for me it's 9 a.m. to noon. But if it goes longer and I have three or four cups of coffee, I am a wreck for the rest of yeah, the day. Yeah, by late afternoon your hands are shaking. Yeah. It's kind of a bad scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I want, oh, by the way, so this is sort of like the British Scottish way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. With the milk in the tea? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I actually don't know what I'm talking about, but that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very good. Well, cheers and cheers. thank you for coming yes. in. My pleasure. 
So you were born in British Columbia, and I, I know you moved to Denman Island, which yeah. has a population of less than fifteen hundred year-round residents. I yeah, think. when I was a kid, it was a thousand people. And the best way I can describe it is the island is actually about the same size and shape as Manhattan Island, uh, but with a thousand people. So it's, yeah, it's rural. Um, it's not particularly remote. It's a 10 minute ferry ride to Vancouver Island. Okay, and so civilization adjacent. Civilization adjacent, exactly. There's a general store, uh, two gas pumps. So there was mm-hmm. when I was a kid. I don't know if there still is. Um, yeah, it was beautiful and somewhat claustrophobic. So I, <laughs> I moved to a really big city. I moved to Toronto when I was 18. I, I read that. So, by the way, when I was looking up Denman Island, because I mm-hmm. hadn't heard of it, and I went on the Wikipedia page, you're a substantial... I'm on the Wikipedia page. Not only yeah. are you on it, you're like a third of it. <laughs> I'm a third of it? You're, oh, you're wow, a very okay. high percentage of the Wikipedia <laughs> page. There's you and a few other things about it that are uh, okay. of note. That's, that's slightly embarrassing, but yeah, when I when I checked that Wikipedia page a few years ago, I was just one line, so it's um it's grown. It's grown. Okay. Your your career is going in the right direction. I, I guess so. Yeah, as measured by the Denman Island Wikipedia page. That's right. <laughs> it's an important metric. And I also read you were homeschooled for a number of years. What was a day in the life of homeschooling for you? Um, alarmingly unstructured. It was. Um, my parents took a very hands-off approach to education, is how I would put it. Um, the best. There were positives and negatives to it. I wish I'd gotten more science and math. Um, I did have an incredible amount of time to read. Mm-hmm. So I think that education, or if I'm being honest here, lack thereof, um, probably did shape my eventual career. It's mm-hmm. uh, I am grateful for it. That's It's interesting you say that. It reminds me of some things. My, my kids are getting a little older now, but still in that you know area where there's some parental involvement to kind of structure their day for mm-hmm. them. And advice we got early, and I think this has become more common in, in general thinking, but don't overstructure them. And, and if yeah. they come to you and say, I'm bored, the response would be like, great, go figure that out. Like, I'm not going to unbore you. you got to yeah, figure exactly. something out. Yeah, I have a seven-year-old, and we have that conversation on a daily basis. Yeah. I'm bored. It's like, well, <laughs> it's not actually my job to entertain you. So, you know, yeah. find something. <laughs> it's so, important. So at age 18, you moved to Toronto to study dance. Yeah, School of Toronto Dance Theater, which is a conservatory program uh, in downtown Toronto. It was a very intense but good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not a degree-granting program, so I never actually got a degree in anything. But, yeah, it, it was interesting. That was a very intense world. I just kind of fell out of dance sometime after that. Mm-hmm. It was all I'd ever wanted to do with my life since I was six. And then, yeah, I got to be about 21 or so, not that long after I graduated the program. and had this moment of realization of, you know what? I don't actually like this anymore. <laughs> so that was the beginning of a slow transition to writing. Yeah. And I read uh, you were around 23 when you started the work on your first novel, although you were always writing a diary. Was that sort of part of it? Yeah. Sometimes it was a journal. Sometimes it was just fragments of fiction, literally on Starbucks napkins. You know, I would just like I'd go for a yeah. walk and I'd be sitting there drinking coffee somewhere and just have this idea for a story that I'd write down. I never finished anything for years and years. Mm-hmm. But when I did have that moment of, you know what, I don't actually want to be a dancer, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And there were a few practical impediments. I hadn't actually quite managed to get a high school diploma because I'd never done 12th grade math. I was just kind of like, eh, I don't need it for the uh, college program that my mom wanted me to do before I auditioned for the dance school. So I'd done most of a GED. I had um, I'd done two semesters of community college. And then I'd gone to this non-degree granting program in contemporary dance, which meant I had no high school diploma, but a mountain of student loan debt. Right. <laughs> it was like the worst possible combination, educationally speaking. Um, 
So it didn't occur to me to go back to college. I felt like that door was closed. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't take on more debt. So that kind of begged the question, well, now what? At the time, I had a couple of friends who were writers, and that made me see it a little bit differently than I had, which is to say, I think when you're young, it's easy to think of writing or maybe the arts generally as this kind of like mystical, magical thing that rarefied people do. Mm -hmm. But if you see somebody doing it, there can be a realization of this is a job. This Mm -hmm. is something you sit down at a desk and do. So that was helpful. And I decided to do that. I decided to try to write a novel and just see what happened and started what became my first novel. Were you working part time or something Uh, to pay bills? Yeah, I always had a day job. I was working in a retail stock room when I started last night in Montreal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would uh, it was pretty brutal. This was Montreal. So it's cold. (laughs) It's really, really cold in Montreal. And yeah, I remember these winter mornings. I would meet a delivery truck at 7 a.m. outside the Caban store in St. Catherine. It's closed now. And help move boxes down to this underground warehouse. And then it was like six or seven hours of, you know, putting price stickers on martini glasses and folding sweaters and like fun mm-hmm. stuff like that, and like zoning out and listening to the radio. Um, and then I would go home in the afternoon and have time to write. And I'd write in the evening sometimes too. So it was a really weird kind of marginal life for a long time. But yeah, that was the first day job. I, After that, I eventually moved, uh, I moved to New York. I had another retail job. I worked as an executive assistant and then- Always with your eye on the prize of I've got to publish yeah, a novel. I'll always with my eye on the prize. It took four years to finish that first book. Yeah. Partly because I didn't really have faith in myself. You know, I wasn't taking myself seriously as a writer. So I would do things like put it down for a month and not think about it. So that dragged it out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I um, I eventually found an agent for it. I eventually finished it. Yeah. And, and that was the first. So I've read, you have six novels, as I mentioned. I've mm-hmm. read the most recent three, but not the first three. Mm-hmm. And which reminds me of a story. So you know Chris Bojelian. Yeah. And you and Chris... Uh, both have Jenny Jackson as your editor. Who so you also had on the show, didn't who would, you? Yep, yeah. Jenny was yeah. here and Chris was here. And when I was getting ready for the interview with Chris, I had I'd never met Chris before and we were corresponding over email. And I said, look, to get ready for your interview, just so you know, I'm going to read your debut, mm-hmm. which is A Killing in the Real World, published in the mid-80s when he was working in an ad firm. And, and I'm going to read your most recent. And he responds like, oh my God, don't do it. Do not do not read <laughs> oh A Killing. It's the worst novel ever wow. published. Do not read my debut. I'm Amazing. like- an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I did read it. And of course, it was actually very good. Mm-hmm. I also noticed big differences. You know, This is a 35-year plus period yeah, between his right. debut and his last one. So big changes in his writing technique mm-hmm. and style. So I wanted to ask you, if I were to go back and read your debut, Last Night in Montreal- other than I know your first three are more sort of crime noir novels. Bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would I be surprised to discover in terms of the evolution of your writing? Um, my writing's definitely gotten weirder. <laughs> you know, we've, uh, the latest book, we go to Moon Colonies. There's a time machine, time traveling detective. Um, it's gotten weirder. It's gotten more confident. And the mm-hmm. scale has expanded. So mm-hmm. the early books, they were set for the most part in fairly small periods of time or maybe two short time periods alternating. A pretty small cast of characters in a way that I think would feel a bit claustrophobic to me now if I were trying to do that. There are really only three main players in Last Night in Montreal. And yeah, you know, I, I come, I know I just said this, but there's something about confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I get what Chris was saying. You know, it's like your first novel. That's when you're learning how to write a novel. Have you gone back to read that at any point in Absolutely the last? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know what? I did. 
I did have a chance to read through it in, I want to say, 2014. That, that was kind of a turning point in my career because that was when I published Station Eleven, which mm-hmm. changed everything in my life. And at that time, my publishers in the U.S. and U.K. Uh, bought my backlist from my previous publisher. Mm-hmm. So last night in Montreal, The Singer's God and The Lola Quartet, and I had an opportunity to read through them, which was such a strange experience because novels are time capsules. Mm-hmm. You know, what what you encounter when you read one of your earliest books is a totally different version of yourself. And for me, there was a feeling of, oh, this is how I wrote a book in my early 20s. That's interesting. It's almost like flipping through your high school yearbook yeah, or something exactly. like that person. Yeah. I know that person, but I can't yeah. quite like... She's kind of familiar, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And the confidence, too, like to, I don't know, go places with the dialogue and the action and the... Yeah. You just yeah. a willingness to explore something new? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm much less careful with genre than I used to be. You know, but my mm-hmm. first three books... They were literary fiction, but also detective fiction, or I should broaden that a little bit, noir. Mm-hmm. And I was very comfortable in that space and really enjoyed it. Um, now I'm much more comfortable adding entirely other elements. So I think you could make an argument for Sea of Tranquility as noir as well. There is this mm-hmm. detective figure, but it is also kind of a crazy sci-fi situation. Yeah. It's interesting, the, the blending of genres. I was just, just encountered this last night because I was reading some spy Thrillers and uh, John Le Carre, who's I like love one of the work so much. And so yeah. he had the one called The Perfect Spy. I think it came out in the mid '80s. I think it's called The Perfect Spy, about which Philip Roth said, "This is the best British novel since the war." And it's you know it's a spy thriller, yeah. but yeah. Philip Roth, who's like the you know most mm-hmm. revered literary guy uh, of the last generation, yeah, you know, view, has that view on it. So it's I'm, really interesting. Nobody did character development better than Le Carre. Yeah. You know, the the Russia house was heartbreaking. The night manager was, too. And I found that in all of his works. They're impeccably plotted spy thrillers. But Mm -hmm. also, the people feel real in a way that feels to me like literary fiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it partly, it's partly a mix of genres. I think it's also an illustration of how arbitrary those genre labels can be. Right. I mean, I understand we kind of need them to point people to the books they want to find and things like that. But really, it's not a perfect, of course, not a perfect yeah, way to perfect categorize yeah. things. So that that's a, a good lead into process questions. I usually do a quick section just so listeners can hear how you do it. And um, maybe some of this has changed, of course, as you've evolved as a, as a writer, as we were just talking about. But do you outline ahead of time? Uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. Um, it would probably be easier if I did. You know, I, I do some TV writing these days, or did. We just went on strike. But, um, you know, in that world, you absolutely have to outline. And I think mm-hmm. it's been good for me to learn how to do that, because I sure don't do that with my novels. Yeah, my my process is I'll have some idea. And it really varies book to book. So mm-hmm. with The Glass Hotel, all the characters are completely fictional. But the central crime is modeled on Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. So in that case, I was obsessed with a real-life crime and wanted to write something that echoed that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just have a premise. Like with my first novel, I just had this this image of a car driving across the desert. And then, you know, the premise raises questions, like, why are they driving? And in answering those questions, a plot can come about. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just that. Yeah, I'll just sit down and start writing a scene. That's amazing. So do you do sketches of characters or any plot points or you really sit down to a blank page with just a vague idea yeah I sit down to a blank page with a vague idea oh my god I'd be scared to death to do that it's fun it's like bungee jumping (laughs) (laughs) not that I've ever done bungee jumping but like you just go you just go you just go Um, 
yeah, it's fun. So yeah, I'll just sit down with a blank page. And you know, mm-hmm. later I have to get my act together and do character sketches and figure out what the plot's actually going to be. But but yeah, I have no idea how the book's going to end. Oh, that's time. fascinating. So the answer to that question has been all over the map of the course of this show. Lee Child, no outlines. Amor mm-hmm. Tolls, obsessive outliner. Okay. Jennifer Egan in the middle where she's like, she writes it and then starts outlining after the first draft. It's oh, So the, all, okay. all kinds of answers. Fascinating right. stuff. Right. So... How about editing? Do you edit as you go, or is it more of a sprint to the finish line and then come back? A bit of both. I edit as I go, but that can absolutely be a procrastination technique, where like yeah. you just have no idea where you're going in the midsection. So you go back and you just like perfect the first five pages. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, it's important to recognize when you're just stalling. So, that, yeah, so I do edit as I go. But at this point, I'm also very at peace with the idea that the first draft is not the book. For me, that's more like the raw material in which I'm going to find the book. Mm-hmm. So if I were a sculptor, that's just the block of marble. And, you know, I'm going to find the figure somewhere in that. So, yeah, I try to get to the finish line as fast as possible. Um, partly, if we're being honest here, because I find revision more fun than the first draft. Mm-hmm. You know, with revision, you're trying to improve something that's already there. And first drafts are harder, at least for me. I, I have to say, I'm relieved to hear that you do lots of revisions because when Jenny Jackson, your editor, was on the show, I was saying, you came up in a conversation and I was saying, her prose is so beautiful and full of wisdom and I read the sentences four or five times because it's just so good. And she said, it shows up that way. Like, I have nothing to do with any of that. Like, we do a little structure work, but her prose is that beautiful when it arrives to me. I'm like, oh my God, tell me <laughs> it's incredible. not a first draft that she's sending in yeah, there. Yeah, by the time it arrives, to, that's amazing, by the way, thank you. Um, yeah, by the time Jenny sees that draft, I've probably revised it 10 times mm-hmm. before I sent it to my agent who gives me notes and then my editors finally get it and they're like uh, early readers in there. So yeah, it's uh, it's polished before Jenny sees it. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank God. Yeah. I would have been like, I don't know what I've done with a, with a jealousy <laughs> that would have boiled up there. Um, do you, so you don't drink. I was, well, I was going to, we're having tea today and I was going to say there are only one writer who you may guess has ever copped to the fact of drinking a little wine while writing everyone else is you know chugging coffee and tea but it was jenny drinks a little wine while she while she writes um right in the mornings nights or whatever um it's really dependent on the childcare slash custody schedule. Let me be honest here. <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, I think like most writer parents, I write when I'm not hanging out with my kids. So mm-hmm. school hours for the most part. Yeah. Really, no work gets done on school holidays or weekends. Right. Um, when my ex has custody, I, you know, I'll write a little bit more all over the place. But yeah, whenever I'm not parenting, it's the real answer. And is there a particular spot or a desk or a? place you like to go or could you do it in a on an airplane i could do it on an airplane um my ideal spot is super boring i really like my home office in brooklyn yeah <laughs> so, yeah that, that's right mostly right and uh, by hand or you type it in um i like to switch back and forth you know I'll, if i'm if we're in the first draft i'll write maybe five to ten pages by hand and then type it in revising as i go and switch back and forth mm-hmm. i sometimes feel like writing by hand slows my brain down a little bit in a way that i need it's also harder to just kind of wander over to Twitter or whatever other right. thing is easier than writing a first draft. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm such a slow typist. I'm actually faster by hand. So okay. the type, I, I sort of, right. I'm a hunt and peck kind of typer. And right. so that really right. is like, takes too much concentration for me. But yeah, makes sense. When you're, when you're writing your first draft and you're in that phase of putting a few pages on the pile every day, what are you reading? Um, my reading habits don't really change, you know, wherever I am in a project. I'm kind of always in a project. I've been continuously writing one novel or another for 
a very long time, um, over 20 years at this point. Mostly contemporary fiction, some nonfiction. Mm-hmm. All right, and last question on process. Um, you you read your friends, too? Your friends' works? Because at this um, point, you must know tons of people in the industry and yeah, other writers. Yeah, I do. I haven't for a while. I think it's just I think that's just my friends' publication schedules, though. Like mm-hmm. Nobody's finished a book in my genre super recently. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, in general, yes. I read my friends, and, and they read me. So you brought up your, your publisher uh, earlier in the conversation. I did have a note here in my research I wanted to ask you about. So one, one of the things I do with writers I love is I go get the first edition mm-hmm. of some of their books. And so I have a first edition of Station Eleven oh, here, nice. which I'll be begging yeah. you to sign later. And I noticed in, in going through all that that your first three books were with a, a small publisher, a literary publisher that I confess mm-hmm. I had not heard of called Unbridled. And That's I, right. I yeah. saw it was um, started by a couple of folks from Penguin Putnam. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did you, how did you come to find them or them find you? And what was the experience like with this publisher? You know, I had a good experience with them. So I... Um, I finished Last Night in Montreal, and then I found an agent, which was which was really fortunate and lovely. She was about the 14th person I'd queried. Her name was Emily Jacobson at Curtis Brown. Mm-hmm. And she had a very old-school way of doing things. And I say this with great affection. She was in her mid-80s when she took me on as a client. So she'd kind of maintained the mores of a previous iteration of the publishing world. And that's kind of a long-winded way of saying she was sending it out to one editor at a time. Oh, right. <laughs> so, um, that was a moment when there was less openness to books that are more than one genre. Mm-hmm. Last Night in Montreal is literary fiction, but there's also a car chase, and it's a detective novel. And a lot of the rejection letters I got back from publishers, and you know, some of them just flat out didn't like it, which is fair. But often the response was, we don't know how we would market a book. Right, like, who is this genre. for? Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. shelf does it go on? Which is really no longer a thing. But yeah. it was back in, I guess, 07 was when we were sending it out. So I was at my administrative day job one day, and I'd been given this horrible task. I, I had to scan something like 500 option agreements for... Um, for various technologies that uh, research labs and university had developed. So, you know, I'm in the copy room photocopying 500 documents and, uh, sorry, scanning 500 documents. And then my phone rang and it was my agent. And she said in her characteristically understated way, so we have an offer for you. And it was this little press that, to be honest, I'd never heard of, Unbridled Books. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so exciting. It was just this amazing thing. Yeah, that's actually, the moment. Yeah, that's the moment when someone wants to publish your first book. So, yeah, I was thrilled. Um, I had a good experience with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, my editor was this guy, Greg Michelson, who was excellent. He made my work so much better than it would have done. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot about all about how to write a good book, you know, from that experience. Yeah. It was a very small press. So, you know, there's a lot of individual attention in a small press. But you don't have the marketing muscle of, say, a Penguin Random House, like rolling in behind your book. To get on the octagon at Barnes & Noble exactly. and that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Or to get more than, say, two people to show up at your events. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing, which, you know, I had that experience. Right. Um, so it, it was hard. You know, It was a world of yeah. $32 royalty checks and just the feeling of constant hustle. Yeah. You know, These really intense small press book tours where it was like hours on Greyhound to get to the airport hotel, which you chose because it was $67 a night, and then the bookstore event where one person shows up, and then you do it again the next day. I was at peace with being an administrative assistant for the rest of my life, but at the same time, 
when I wrote Station Eleven, I felt like maybe I had a more commercial premise on my hands. Yeah. I thought maybe I could just take a swing at this and try to land with a bigger publishing house. Um, the guys at Unbridled could not have been more gracious. They completely understood. And so you, you worked with the same agent, but switched t- houses um, at that point. My uh, my my first agent, Emily Jacobson, she actually passed away oh. um, around the time of my second novel, um, very suddenly of pneumonia in her eighties. Um, and I I landed with Catherine Fawcett at Curtis Brown, mm-hmm. who had actually been lined up to be my next agent because Emily was about to retire, and then. Catherine called me one day with the news that, that Emily had died. Um, so I, I've been with Catherine ever since. She's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah, so same same agency, different agents. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, Station Eleven sold at auction, which was this incredible experience. And the, the publication of that book completely changed my career. Oh my gosh, I, I cannot. So I, I, I want to talk a bit about that a little later because I know that experience of that fame, that kind of mm-hmm. sudden fame, you took on as a topic in a, in a future book. So we'll, we'll, I want to round back to that. But So I, I came to Station Eleven sort of in that second wave. It, it was 2014 it mm-hmm. came out. And uh, so I read it in 2020, early COVID, when, of course, the lists of like, here are the virus, you know, dystopian books. So I read it, you know, as, as a genre thing. But of course, it's not because it's a very literary book. And I finished reading. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to read everything this person has written. So I went back okay. and... Um, have read the others, but do you ever read that way? Do you ever find an author you love and just go? Absolutely, read, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll read anything by Jennifer Egan. And uh, mm-hmm. same with Dan Sean. He's another one of my favorites. Oh, I have not read him. Oh, to... he's so good. Yeah, that last name spelled like chaos, but with an N instead of an S. I'm a huge fan of his work. All right, I will, I will find him. Um, so let's talk about the fame, actually, because yeah. uh, that did make a huge impression on you. It You take it on in... Sea of Tranquility as a mm-hmm. as a topic as a sea of the main character or a character in the book is a writer who's on tour and going through many of the experiences you did after um, Station Eleven. What were some of the best and the worst things of that? You know, sudden fame. Um, the best thing is something that I wouldn't have dreamt of during the period of my career when I was showing up to bookstore events and one person was there, <laughs> which yeah. was. It is extraordinary to walk into a packed room and everybody in the audience cares about your work. Like mm-hmm. That's just something that I didn't think would ever happen, and it's an amazing feeling. It's incredible and surreal when people have tattoos that are lines from my novel. I have seen that on social yeah, media. It's amazing. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, the worst things, there was a degree of, there is a degree of sexism that one encounters, which, you know, I get into and see of tranquility a bit. Mm-hmm. And... To be clear, it's not soul-destroying, but it is annoying. (laughs) It's just like this thing that you deal with consistently on the road. Um, What's an example of of that that you can... I mean, I know you have examples uh, yeah, in the book, but too. But... The, there are a lot of verbatim examples in there. Um, a lot of strange, casual comments. Um, I remember a woman in Dallas saying, you must have a very kind husband to look after your child while right, you that do this. Here, right? That's yeah. in there, yeah. yeah. And, you know, just try to map that sentiment onto a male business traveler. And it's like, it's a bit of a leap. Yeah. Um, also, something that came up a lot, which is someone would say to me, did you write Station Eleven with a particular message in mind that you wanted readers to take away? And I would say, no, I, I didn't. I didn't have one message. They said, are you sure? <laughs> Every <laughs> and That would be always the response. And I never know what to say to that. It's like, uh, yes, actually, I am sure. I am actually the expert on the book that I wrote. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of that kind of thing. Um, a lot of, so where's your child? Well, why are you here then? Um, amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of amazing. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human, Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. I also wanted to talk about the the AI and some of the simulation theory mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. I actually, I just saw you did something on on social media just the other day in support of. The writer strike, you yeah, know, and like AI could started, take over, so, yeah. you know, and yeah. did you see there was actually, I was just uh, looking at Twitter this morning and there was a New York Times book review of a book called Death of an Author that was written by AI. So they just reviewed it and, uh-huh. you know, it was sort of like a middling review, like the writing wasn't that great, but books and screenplays could be generated by this chat AI app, Absolutely. which is it's horrifying. Kind of it is horrifying, but it's also like, who is the real author there? You know, it's an IP nightmare because AI is drawing on this massive database of pros. Mm-hmm. Who owns the source material? It's like I, it, it raises some really weird, interesting yeah. IP ownership questions. I think in this example of death of an author, the main character was sort of like a so the, the character in the book was a writer mm-hmm. that sort of looked like Margaret Atwood in a way. Right. And okay. so I, they, they've clearly dropped in a few novels of inspiration for the mm-hmm. chat AI to then. But so to your point, it's like, well, they've basically drawn off this other material. Yeah. So does Margaret Atwood own part of the rights? Yeah. And who did the chat? I don't know. It's all, it's all, uh, the ethics are trailing the technology by, by a a leap there. Yeah. Yeah. So years ago, I went to a Isaac Asimov event at the Natural History Museum and two, two of my friends, Josh Siegel and Chris Heinz, if you're listening, they had called me and said, uh, there's this Asimov thing. Do you want to go? And Mm -hmm. like, being the nerd that I am, I'm like, absolutely, let's that was do like it. All I read as a teenager, <laughs> I would have done it too. Well, that's so funny because yeah, I had, I had actually Asimov. never read him. So uh-huh. I read Foundation and a couple others just to get ready for the event. And uh, as Chris was describing, I think it was Chris, not Josh, who was describing it to me, he's like, take these virtual world games. I think it was Second Life is the one. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't played it, but I had seen a bit. He's like, imagine how good that's going to be 
in 10 or 15 years. I'm like, oh, that'd be pretty amazing, I guess. You know, 3D stuff will look really cool. Mm-hmm. And he's like, imagine in 50 or 100. My like, God, in 100 years, it'd be as rich and layered as real life. And he goes, yeah. in 1,000. And then, you know, a million years in sort of universe time, when they do that thing of the history of the universe, 24 hours, a million years is like a camera's flash. That, that's it. Yeah. And he's like, imagine yeah. what it'll be in a million years. It's almost impossible that we're not now living in a simulation. I'm like, oh my God, you're starting to persuade me. <laughs> right, right. Dude. <laughs> yeah, right. But what do, yeah. what do you think of simulation theory? I know you've written so much about it, and it yeah. must have been so hard to do the time travel and the structure of that book, which you did so well. But what are your thoughts on AI and simulation theory and all that That's stuff? That's a big question. Um, honestly, uh, simulation theory wasn't hard in this book. It was the solution to the time travel problem, which is, you know, if you think about a time travel narrative for five minutes, it kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. Like, how does the arrival of a time traveler in the past not completely rupture the timeline in an irreparable way? Right. And the only way I could solve for that problem was to have um, this whole other level of sci-fi weirdness over top, which is the simulation hypothesis, mm-hmm. which for anybody listening is unfamiliar. That's what it sounds like. It's the idea that all of all of our reality is a simulation. I don't know if we're in a simulation or not. The idea I finally came to in thinking about this and writing about it was, I don't think it matters. I think our lives are still meaningful, even if we are in a simulation. And, you know, part of my thinking on that is, what is a simulation? It's like, you know, if we're talking about fast blinks of time, think about how insanely simulated and science fictional our current lives would seem to our ancestors, say, let's go way back, say like 20,000 years ago, like incomprehensible. This would have felt like sci-fi. To them, this would have felt like a simulation. But our lives now are not any less meaningful or less real than their lives were. And yeah, I think our decisions still matter, whether we're in a simulation or not. That's what I came to. I don't know what'll happen with AI, though. That's, uh, That's a whole other insane aspect of our society it's going so fast i uh i feel like i know there's pushes right for by some people to you know put the brakes on we've got to Mm -hmm. figure out where this is headed before we before we get there but like Um, we've seen this movie they'll put the brakes on and some rogue scientist will like make the civilization destroy exactly the bad guys will not put the brakes on and then it'll be in the hands of maybe the wrong i don't know Mm -hmm. it's uh maybe this is can be your next novel or something you can figure this out for us it's certainly terrifying (laughs) i'll think about it (laughs) um well before we get to the lightning round there are two other questions i wanted to Mm -hmm. ask you one is you have found a positive use for twitter and anytime somebody does that, I feel like it should be celebrated. So you managed to use Twitter to force <laughs> to, Wikipedia to yes. make corrections. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I, I used Twitter to bend reality. It worked out. <laughs> um, okay, so I got a divorce uh, last year, which was pretty common. In fact, so common that the New York City divorce courts are backed up by about a year. So we had to go way upstate, which pro tip is much faster. <laughs> yeah, so I got a divorce. Uh, the marriage had ended in April of last year. Uh, divorce was finalized in November. And about a month later, so December, um, someone brought to my attention that my Wikipedia page still said I was married. And, you know, it bothered me a little bit that it was inaccurate. But on the other hand, I was like, you know what, it's Wikipedia. Like, my date of birth was inaccurate on the Wikipedia page. But I'd started dating a couple of months after the marriage ended. So it was a little awkward for my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of thinking this through and realizing, like, her friends are going to look me up and they'll be like, um, did you know that Emily's you're, still married? You're dating a married woman? <laughs> yeah, like, that's a red flag. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I really wanted to change it. It felt like it wasn't, wasn't really fair to her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I was like, all right, how hard can this be? Like, it's my Wikipedia page. I knew if I just went into the edit function and changed it, it would probably just get changed right back because I figured I needed some kind of proof. Yeah. So I looked up the docket number for, uh, you know, this New York State divorce case. Um, and I sent this to I sent it to this email address associated with Wikipedia. I was like, um, hey, could you please just delete this line in my bio? I'm not married anymore. Here's a reference number. You know, you can look it up online. Uh, the response was no. We need a citation. I was like, all right. Um, you know, I don't. I didn't quite understand why providing a court document was like somehow less reliable than a journalist saying I was divorced. Right. But fine. <laughs> like Wikipedia right. runs on citations. So I was like, all right. I need a citation. This was the week before Christmas. So I'm thinking like. How do I make a citation happen? I think actually just a tweet would have been sufficient, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that much about how it worked. So I, I knew this uh, senior Wikipedia editor in kind of a peripheral way. So spoke with him. Um, he said a tweet is not sufficient. He said, you need an interview. You need to say in an interview that you've gotten a divorce and that will be the citation mm -hmm. that fixes your Wikipedia page. And so it was like, oh, God, how do I make an interview happen in the week before Christmas? Like, I have a genius publicist at Knopf. But, A, you can't really just make interviews happen out of thin air. Like, they got to be tied to some kind of event. And, B, like, week before Christmas. So she was like, yeah, I could absolutely get you an interview in four months when the paperback edition of Sea right. of Tranquility comes <laughs> But that felt like a really long time for my, my girlfriend's friends to be, like, pointing out that she was dating a married woman. Yeah. Um, so I was like, all right, maybe I could use Twitter. So yeah, I went on Twitter and sent a series of tweets. The first one was something to the effect of, friends, did you know that if you have a Wikipedia page and you get a divorce, the only way to get that information corrected on Wikipedia is to say in an interview that you've, that you've gotten a divorce. Sounds crazy, but Wikipedia runs on citations. Anyway, all I want for Christmas is for a journalist <laughs> to, <laughs> to say um, in a piece for publication, online only is fine, uh, that, I've, that I've gotten a divorce, or to, to ask me if I'm still married. Within, I wanna say about 45 minutes, I get this email into my inbox from Dan Coyce at Slate. Um, subject header, I would totally interview. <laughs> it was the most beautiful softball interview I've ever done in my life. Only about five questions. Um, published as a totally normal interview with author Emily St. John Bendel. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. I think about the third or fourth question is, so, are you still married? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> so, yeah, so that interview happened, and that went live really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and then the BBC contacted me, and it became this this BBC story. I thought it was just like a like another softball interview. But then my mom was like, um, "My friends say they heard an interview with you on the BBC News. <laughs> it must have been a really slow news day. That's all I can say." But. Yeah, that, that fixed the Wikipedia problem. It worked. It so worked, you, yeah. In time for Christmas? In time for Christmas. All right. Yeah, I got my wish. Perfect. Uh, one more question before lightning round about book-to-film stuff. So I know mm -hmm. there's the TV series for Station Eleven that we talked about, but there's more in the works, and I read... Uh, I know the, the strike is all going on now, so that interrupts things a bit, but I read that you're involved with doing some of the writing for the next book to film stuff. I am. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to work with Patrick Somerville, who's a friend of mine and who was the showrunner of the Station Eleven series. Yeah, on both Glass Hotel and Sea of Tranquility. Mm -hmm. It's all kind of in limbo because Hollywood is chaos, but, but yeah, that's the plan. So you mentioned there's a little more outlining and, I don't know, storyboarding, I guess, before you yeah. get into writing scripts, but how, what are some of the big differences for you and taking this on 
Um, the big differences for me are partly just on the production level, where in a book, you can just send a character to a moon, you know, in like mm-hmm. you know, in one sentence, and then send them to 1950, and then send them somewhere else in time and space. In a script, you're building sets. You know, there are actually financial implications yeah. to, uh, to thinking through locations and crowds and parties and things like that. So thinking about that is a completely different experience for me. Also, yeah, just mapping it out. You know, like you really do kind of need to know how the story ends before you begin it. And that, that's just a completely different thing for me. The biggest thing, though, the biggest difference, I should say, is that it's collaborative. And that's what I truly love about it. Yeah. I want to ask you about, are you, are you doing writer's room stuff where you're coming up with sort of a season arc and then people go off and write different episodes? Or how does it? Um, we haven't gotten that far yet with The Glass Hotel. We had a mini room, which is um, kind of a cute term for a very short writer's room. It was only about 10 weeks. And the mission was, um, at the end of that, we had to have two scripts and a series outline. So the way that played out is it took the whole room, that whole period of time, to kind of map out first the season and then to get more granular on episodes one and two. And then um, I co-wrote episode one with Patrick, and he co-wrote episode two with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was how it played out there. But yeah, you know, the the writer's room experience, it's something I really love. It's, It's kind of addictive, just being in a room with other people who are as yeah. obsessed with narrative as I am. And you just kind of sit down and build a world together. It's a pretty incredible thing. It's got to be fun, that collaborative side of yeah. it. After, you know, being so isolated, writing novels, you're holed up, you know, with your only your make-believe friends for exactly. months on end. You say, if I have real friends, or unless yeah. we're in a simulation, in which case, in which nobody's case real. In which case, simulations, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> but fingers crossed, at least yeah. some of us are. <laughs> it's funny you talk about the budget. Uh, Dennis Lehane was on the show mm-hmm. a couple months ago, and he was saying that they were writing one of the shows, I can't remember which, and the theme was going to be on a boat in the ocean. And the guy goes like, we're over budget. It's not boat ocean. It's indoor kitchen day. So indoor kitchen day <laughs> became like a buzzword for like uh-huh. where all the scenes were going to be because they didn't have the money to be anywhere else. Yeah, fair. Uh, okay, so on to the lightning round. Okay. You're, I'm going to have a little more tea, which by the way, the smell of the tea is so nice, pleasant right? and yeah. nice. Yeah. yeah. Your favorite book as a kid. The Dark is Rising series by Susan Cooper. I haven't read that. I'm, I'm getting so many book suggestions out of, out of doing these, so I'll, I'll get that one. Uh, the book or books you're reading now? I'm reading a book, and I'm blanking on the title. Um, it's about the German occupation of Paris during the Second World War. Oh. It's so good. That, oh, When uh, Paris Went Dark. When That's Paris, it. Is there yeah. a documentary about that as well? Like Paris sure. is Burning, maybe? Or I might maybe. be thinking of something else, but I, that story is amazing. Yeah, and there was some, like, they were going to burn down a bunch of buildings, and somehow there was sort of a... Uh, collaborative make sure it didn't happen um yeah it's wild least so you referenced this a little bit earlier but least attended book event ever i once had an event for one of my first three books where three people showed up but not at the same time (laughs) so one guy wandered in i chatted with him for a little bit he wandered out somebody else came (laughs) it's not actually clear to me in retrospect that any of them were there for the event they might have just wandered into the bookstore and felt kind of embarrassed was this on your debut or one of the first three it was either The Singer is Gone or The Lola Quartet, so either book two or book three. Okay. Were you doing, at that time, were you doing sort of local, I guess you were living in Toronto, or, was, or were you back in New, New York, York by that time? Yeah, yeah, but I was going out on tour. I think this was Lexington, Kentucky. I think that's where it happened. Okay. Yeah. Uh, most obnoxious question ever asked at a book event? I think the most obnoxious question is when people are like, so so where's your daughter? It's yeah. like, oh, you know, I just left her out in the woods. She's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this book she is has... way more important than my exactly. kid. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, Name the so we talked about 
uh, contemporary dance a little bit and ballet and point technique is what you're mm-hmm. when you're up on the the toes. So, yeah. name one thing more painful than point technique. One thing more painful than point technique. I'm not a huge fan of dental surgery. I'd say like <laughs> dental surgery or maybe doing my taxes. Like that's also painful in <laughs> a different way. And is in recent memory. Yeah, exactly. Um, favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? Um, I love uh, Severance on Apple. That's a great show. Um, I've also been watching Hacks. It's really funny. Who's in Hacks? I've heard Hacks of that one. Is... Is that, that's not the Harrison Ford one. No, it's a uh, God, I'm blanking the name of the actresses. Um, it's the one about the sort of aging comedian in Las Vegas and this up-and-coming, slightly arrogant Los Angeles TV writer flames out in her career and has to come help her. It's it's really funny. Okay, I'll yeah. check it out. Um, by the way, I'm in the middle of Succession right now, which okay. has just been awesome. I don't know if it's you watched that show. one. It's yeah. All right, final question for Emily St. John Mandel. One piece of good advice for the listeners. This is writing advice, but I find it broadly applicable. I think you should finish what you start. I love that. Thank Short, you. succinct, yeah. and complete. And complete. That's, yeah, that's a whole line. <laughs> Emily, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.